Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. 1970 had finally arrived, and Rosina promised herself she'd patrol her room more carefully in the new year. At 13, she was tired of worrying about the monster under her bed. She wanted to sleep like a big girl, so she instituted a new nightly ritual. Flashlight in hand, she checked her closet, the reading nook, and beneath her box spring. Satisfied her room was monster-free, she said her evening prayer and pulled the sheets up to her chin. At ease, for the first time in weeks, Rosina drifted off to sleep. In the wee hours, she woke to a kiss on her cheek. Groggy, she trembled. The monster had never touched her before. As she focused on his figure, she realized it wasn't the beast waking her. It was her old, green-eyed Uncle Doug. His New Zealand accent was thick. He said, God showed me his plan for your life. He's given you to me as my handmaiden. Do you trust God? The child nodded. Uncle Doug moved closer, told her she was a good girl, and began to fondle her. Minutes later, he carried her into the laundry room downstairs, pressed her against the wall, and stole her innocence. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. This week in a one-part episode, we're taking a deep dive into the 100-member community known as Full Gospel Mission, aka The God Squad. Established in New Zealand around 1960, the founder was self-appointed Bishop Douglas Metcalf. Doug was an attention-seeking evangelist, a believer in alternative medicine, and a sexual predator. Though Doug's school-aged victims kept the secret of his abuse, it plagued them for decades. Paranoid and militant, Doug convinced the squad to stockpile illegal weaponry in preparation for a communist invasion and the apocalypse. Coming up, we'll put Douglas Metcalf under the microscope. Douglas Metcalf was born in 1921 in Dunedin, a city on the southeast coast of New Zealand's South Island. World War I had come to an end. The first radio broadcast hit the country's airwaves, and citizens were finally finding work again. Baby Doug was the apple of his mother's eye. While his father worked odd jobs in other towns, his mother doted on her little one. They didn't have much, but they didn't need it. They had each other. Mrs. Metcalf tended to her son's every need. She made and mended his clothing, tickled his tiny toes, and fed him whenever he whimpered. Her favorite ritual was bath time. Whenever she drew a bath for herself, she carried her little boy into the lukewarm water with her. Baby Doug learned to laugh, walk, and eat on his own, but his mother wouldn't let go of their bathing custom. Still, the toddler thought nothing of it. In fact, when he learned to speak, he asked for his bath with Mama. 
One quiet autumn night in 1925, four-year-old Doug heard his mother moaning. He thought maybe she had a tummy ache, so he went to check on her. When he opened the door to the bathroom, he saw his father pushing into her against the wall. He gasped, startling his dad, who yelled at him to get the hell out. Doug ran. His father later followed, then pinned the boy down and hit him. Abuse at his father's hand was somewhat common. Doug much preferred it when his father was out of the house for work. While his relationship with his father had soured, he and his mother had an unbreakable bond. But one evening, Mr. Metcalf returned early from a job to find four-year-old Doug and his mother playing together naked in the bath. Mr. Metcalf erupted. A devout Christian, he said his boy was tainted by Satan. He pulled his bare child from the suds and beat him within an inch of his life. Once he finished with Doug, he put his hands on his wife. He shouted she was turning their son into a heathen. Doug's mother swore she would never take a bath with the boy again, and she stuck to her promise. At just four years old, Doug learned that a rage-filled outburst could get someone to obey him. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to researchers Allison Cunningham and Linda Baker of the Center for Children and Families in the Justice System, male rationalizations for abuse can include, I'm the man, so I'm in charge, or God demands that I keep the family in line. A child believing these ideas could see women as inferior, excuse the man's abusive behavior, or even try to emulate him. Such a child could grow up to justify abuse in intimate relationships or workplace settings. Young Doug's intimacy with his mother created in him a perpetual longing for touch. But the bruises his father left him taught him intimate contact was a sin. One parent tempted him to connect, and the other shamed him for it. This made for quite the paradox in his personality. Later in his teenage years, Doug spent his free time spying on schoolgirls from behind bushes or parked cars. He loved studying their bodies and tried to catch glimpses of their undergarments. Yet his voyeurism also came with shame. He tried to stop his ungodly behavior by practicing the Christian values his father preached. Doug grew intensely devout, swearing to honor God and hoping one day to lead his own church. He practiced the Pentecostal religious art of healing, anointing others with cooking oil and driving out evil spirits. Doug may have wondered how he could be great when his past was so unsavory. Like Charles Manson or David Koresh, he believed he could only thrive if his personal history remained surreptitious. In the same vein, Doug's extreme privacy created a gap in what we know about his early years. Though we don't know exactly when Doug left Dunedin, we know he didn't go very far. Doug resurfaced on Eureka Street in the Aranui district of Christchurch, 200 miles away, preaching his Pentecostalist views to anyone that listened. Bishop Doug came across all types of people as he evangelized around town. And it wasn't long before he met a young lady by the name of Pearl. We know little about her childhood, but as an adult, she was said to be kind, submissive, and a talented seamstress. Plus, she was Christian. She believed wholeheartedly in Doug's potential, which he found endearing. 
Shortly after, the couple began dating. It wasn't long until Doug proposed to Pearl. She didn't hesitate to say yes. He and Pearl spent their time as newlyweds going door to door preaching the gospel. Pearl was easy to get along with and quite engaged in the community. This meant she was able to make introductions for her husband. But for years, Doug had no luck building any significant following for his proposed church, the Full Gospel Mission. Strangers thought he was pushy and too serious. However, Doug felt his audacity was justified. Many Pentecostals believe the Bible exists without error, and its miracles maintain their relevance, even in the modern age. To Doug, such phenomena took the form of sudden healing from injuries and illness, and these healings proved that his actions were proper. Bishop Doug believed these marvels were the signals of God's hand, and it was one such marvel that finally gave Doug the foothold he needed to launch his reputation in Christ Church. In 1957, 36-year-old Bishop Douglas Metcalf knocked on the door of a brassy 17-year-old newlywed named Golda. When she opened the door, she noticed the Bible in his hand. The first thing he noticed was the newborn in her arms. Gruffly, Golda said she had no interest in being preached to, but as she shut the door, Doug stopped it with his palm. Golda told him that in her experience, prayer didn't work. If it did, why hadn't God helped her close friend who was dying of cancer? Bishop Doug asked for time enough to pray for Golda's friend. Distracted by her restless babe, she allowed it. As he prayed, the baby girl's cries were mollified. Grateful for the peace and quiet, Golda thanked the bishop for the prayer. One day, their prayers were answered. Her friend's leukemia had disappeared without a trace. She said the doctors were flabbergasted. Golda was forever in Doug's debt. The next thing Doug knew, Golda was knocking on his door. She insisted he teach her everything about Jesus and the gospel. By 1960, Golda became fast friends with Pearl. They eventually took turns hosting Bible study parties. Whenever Doug preached to Golda's friends at the get-togethers, he won new followers. They were drawn to his beautiful voice. Simultaneously gentle and persuasive, he cultivated a magnetic power that led every listener to believe he was speaking to them alone. Suddenly, he had a flock. But Doug's version of Christianity started to morph as his following grew. He was inspired by British Israelism, the belief that the lost tribes of Israel migrated to Europe and were the primary ancestors of the British. Doug coupled this notion with the pomp, spectacle, and military intent of the Knights Templar. Thus, the full gospel mission was born. According to Bishop Doug, other faiths were bastardizations of the true religion he envisioned. Even in the beginning, Doug laid out an us-versus-them sentiment. He taught his congregation to ignore emotion and gut instinct. He said the only thing that mattered was that his followers suffered in the name of Jesus Christ. Nobody questioned Doug's interpretation of the Bible. They simply honored and revered the bishop. To them, he was the hero they'd long been waiting for. All the while, Doug and Pearl grew closer to Golda and her husband. They even became uncle and auntie to Golda's baby, Rosina, who by the early 1970s had become quite a pretty girl. 13-year-old Rosina was earnest and faithful in her own right. She relied heavily on Uncle Doug to answer her spiritual questions, just as he'd done for her mother years earlier. 
It wasn't uncommon for Uncle Doug to spend more time in Rosina's household than his own home. She trusted him as if he were her own father, which was why when she woke up one chilly night in 1970 to her uncle sitting on the edge of her bed, she thought nothing of it. Sleepy-eyed, she asked what he was doing in her room. He told her not to make a peep. He wanted to share some special news with her. The 49-year-old bishop told the adolescent girl she was chosen by God to be his handmaiden. According to Napaki Rose's memoir, The Committed Concubine, Uncle Doug said, God has given you to me to be trained as a vessel of honor in the temple of the Lord. The girl was at once titillated by the prospect of working directly for God, but her excitement mingled with a sad confusion over what her prophet uncle did next. His calloused hand massaged her as he spoke of her divine responsibility. Rosina grew nauseous as he led her to the laundry room. There, he raped the child. Next, Bishop Doug's lust for power grows. Hi, it's Greg. Parcast has a brand new series sure to become your next podcast obsession. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alistair Burton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In the 1960s, native New Zealander Doug Metcalf appointed himself the bishop of a rapidly growing community of devoted followers. Full Gospel Mission, or the God Squad as it was often referred to, was 100 members strong. Doug taught his sect that as Abraham's descendants, they would inherit the Holy Land. Doug assured his flock that he would do everything in his power to fulfill the prophecy. As he hooked congregants on the theory, he evolved his position. He claimed to be Christ reincarnated. His followers readily accepted this new truth with praise and awe. Fortified by his flock, Doug took increased and varied risks, including the sexual assault of his best friend's daughter, Rosina. He'd spent years acting as a fatherly figure to her and earning her trust. According to the Australian Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuses, sexually abusive behavior includes child grooming, which refers to actions deliberately undertaken with the aim of befriending and establishing an emotional connection with a child to lower the child's inhibitions in preparation for sexual activity with the child. 
It seems all too likely that Doug had been grooming both Rosina and her parents to prepare them for the abuse he had planned all along. By obtaining the parents' worship, they would never question the time he spent with their daughter. And by swearing their daughter to secrecy, she would never tell her parents what Doug did to her behind closed doors. Uncle Doug did everything he could to keep Rosina quiet. He drove Rosina a few miles from her home to Mount Victoria. Under the stars, he pointed to the site of a violent murder that was in the news. He detailed the story of how two sisters pushed their mother over the edge of a treacherous cliff. In unspoken words, he told Rosina the same fate would befall her should she breathe a word of their interactions. Clocking the fear in her eyes, he comforted her by sharing that their sexual act cleansed her. Doug asked if she would pray with him and make a promise to God to serve him. She agreed, eager to be done with the ordeal. Secure in their pact to carry on in secret, Doug brought Rosina home. Doug's abuse of Rosina made him more confident. But he realized if he wanted real control over his congregation, he'd need to further isolate them. He wanted them removed from the rest of society where outsiders wouldn't be able to challenge his philosophy. Doug relied heavily on teaching a sort of dualistic thinking. According to the book by Catherine Boyd, The Fundamentalist Mindset, dualistic thinking is inherently related to paranoia and the apocalyptic. Locating evil also presumes the possibility of salvation or escape from evil. In other words, Doug had to make the outside world scary to the members of his cult. If his followers discovered the world was safe, they might leave him. Later, in 1970, he felt the time was right to present his flock with an idea. He told the congregation that the Communist Party was looking to bring down the devout. If captured, the Reds would tattoo a symbol of Satan, the number 666, on the squad members' heads. As the members believed the digits could invoke the Antichrist, they feared the mark could bar their entry to heaven. To protect themselves from this fate, he ordered the church to limit any interaction with the outside world. He demanded they even break family ties. Then he convinced them to help him build a commune just outside of Christ Church in the Canterbury Hills. In 1972, 51-year-old Bishop Doug Metcalf led his sect from its initial home in Christ Church to a 118-acre plot of land an hour north, outside of Wipera. Together, the members of his full gospel mission began constructing an impenetrable bastion. The campus was enveloped by a 25-foot-tall fortress-like barrier complete with a drawbridge and a system of high-voltage electric fences. Bishop Doug named the estate Camp David. Above its gates hung a sign that read, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Inside, he commissioned a large six-bedroom house to share with Pearl and his growing family. By this point, the couple had five children living with them and another two with cognitive disabilities living at a facility. For his followers, a caravan park was erected for family trailers along with three or four barracks. Doug also required that land be put aside as sacred grounds on which he could lead services. He hand-selected the most devout males as his apostles. Under the totara trees, Bishop Doug preached, flanked by the ornately robed men. The sacred area was landmarked by a perfectly scaled replica of the Tabernacle of David, a building in which the biblical Ark of the Covenant was said to be housed. 
Beyond his home and the ritual spot, the commune was an intimidating campus of medieval-looking breeze block buildings. The bishop constantly reminded his flock that they were chosen by God to inhabit the promised land. He invited families of followers to reside on the premises, but established from the beginning that women weren't permitted to leave the encampment. But Doug demanded men bring in substantial income from outside world jobs. Even though this went against his isolationist teachings, Bishop Doug needed money to run his church. Under this setup, the church flourished, but as the membership grew, so did Douglas's obsession with power. Around 1973, Bishop Doug told Golda he'd chosen her daughter, 15-year-old Rosina, for a special post as his secretary. In fact, God demanded that Rosina leave her family's barracks and live with him. Doug's word was law, and though the girl's mother was devastated to see her daughter go, she bent to her leader's whim. Doug had achieved near-absolute power, and he planned to continue exercising that power in other ways. He even controlled what all of his disciples wore. Women were forced to keep their hair waist-length, confined to long skirts, and made to dress in floral prints. They also donned headscarves. These were emblems of submission. Moreover, females were banned from purple or red attire. These were considered royal colors, meant only for the men. In addition, Doug retained five or so adolescent girls to act as his personal minions. They wandered the property with walkie-talkies so they could tend to the bishop's every need. If the founder ordered them to secure whipped cream for his strawberries, they were expected to deliver. But the women weren't the only ones bound to Doug's strict rules. Men were required to wear skull caps crocheted by their wives while his male disciples could leave the grounds. When they returned from work, they were expected to spend hours tending the farm. In the event they finished early, men passed the time quizzing each other at their all-night Bible study sessions. Doug got off on governing with an iron fist. Beyond paying for life at Camp David, the followers' incomes bankrolled the purchase of military equipment, ammunition, and semi-automatic weaponry. Bishop Doug stated on several occasions that the full gospel mission was one of the lost tribes of Israel, and he believed they should model an army after that of their Middle Eastern brethren. Doug used the group's funds to travel to the holy regions for research, though he kept his trips top secret. Some of the sect feared that he had close ties with terrorist groups, but no one dared mention it. It's possible even the most independent God Squad converts succumbed to a complacent groupthink. According to the New York Times article, Psychology of the Cult Experience, cult expert Margaret Singer said, consciously and manipulatively, cult leaders exert a systematic social influence that can produce great behavioral changes. One excellent example of this is when Doug called disciples into his home one by one to rename them. None of his members resisted. Doug even arranged marriages within the compound. Doug set the wedding dates and selected bridal gowns. He wrote each ceremony and planned each celebration. The couples-to-be had no say. Once couples united, they weren't off the hook. Their intimate lives were fully regulated by Doug. He forbade sex on Tuesdays to keep his followers clean for communion on Wednesdays. Sect members even had to ask to try for a baby. 
Doug also restricted his congregation's ability to visit the doctor. Instead, he practiced a centuries-old version of naturopathy and demanded the same of his church. With massages and herbs, he believed he could coerce the body to heal itself. If the situation seemed dire, he performed exorcisms to banish demons from the sick. Doctors were only ever called if a follower was at death's door. And even then, the totalitarian leader would act dismayed. While he absolutely believed in his fundamentalist convictions, Bishop Doug also found that peddling superstition kept his flock tethered to their religion. It escalated their fear and ensured their loyalty to him as their protector. To heighten his station, Bishop Doug brandished his authority like a decorative sword. During services, he donned ridiculous costumes and forced his minions to announce his presence by blasting ram's horns he'd acquired from a festival in Jericho. He made prophecies as outlandish as his attire. By the early 1970s, he'd spun a prophecy convincing his flock the apocalypse was set for the year 2011. He reminded the squad, as Christ reincarnated, only he could deliver them to salvation. In order to reach heaven, they had to obey him. Near the end of 1973, Bishop Doug's flock captured the attention of nearby locals from the town of Waipara. Neighbors found it odd that God Squad members were so united in their obedience, uniform, and devotion. Rumors spread that a Manson family-type cult was operating in their own backyards. Townspeople approached the police. To assuage their fears, law enforcement agreed to keep Metcalf and his devotees on their radar. Though they investigated the surrounding grounds fairly regularly, the authorities had no warrant to enter Camp David. The police tried several times but found no evidence of illegal activity. It startled the followers to see cops patrolling Camp David, but Doug used this to his benefit. He told his disciples to be ready to flee to the hills. The church was being watched, and a communist attack was inevitable. Up next, authorities raid Camp David, and Bishop Doug meets an untimely end. Now back to the story. Throughout the 1970s, Bishop Douglas Metcalf lorded over his flock, the full gospel mission. He called on them to build him a religious compound. There, they trained as an army and awaited the end of days that Doug said was coming by 2011. Doug insisted the group protect their holy land by carrying out special military operations. Behind the gates of Camp David, the God Squad labored to form a first-class guerrilla unit. Doug called it the SSG, Special Services Group. And by 1975, both the women and men had endless hours of training under their belt, all preparing for the anarchy of the encroaching millennium. The troops worked in the dead of night to secure an area of Waipara just off State Highway 1 to hide their guns. Out of the purview of the police, they dug deep pits in various undisclosed locations along the road. They made sure the stash was at least four feet from the Earth's surface so as not to be easily discovered. Tirelessly, they covered their tracks and made sure the land looked undisturbed. To the squad, nothing was worse than missing out on Christ's reward for the righteous. By the summer of 1977, when Bishop Doug was 56 years old, the police had collected a slew of grievances from the neighbors. Many cited gunshots or the firing of cannons. 
Rumors even spread that the sect had stolen equipment from a nearby Air Force base. Their hearsay was given credence when it was discovered that a significant number of the disciples were former Air Force personnel. It was precisely the bit of intelligence authorities needed to get a warrant to raid Camp David. Armed to the hilt, special operations agents invaded the encampment. Some units infiltrated the sleeping quarters, while others spread out over the grounds. Moments after the raid began, Bishop Doug gathered the children in their headscarves and caps. Ever so quietly, he loaded them up with arms full of guns. He told them to hide them in their rooms as quickly as they could. While the God Squad's youngest raced to hide the weapons, the army of agents tore up the place, searching for incriminating evidence. On the hunt, the police moved fast, clearing rooms with precision. Suddenly, an officer shouted from the back of the camp. Members of his unit beelined to his location, Doug's office. A steel door covered the entrance to the gunroom, where rows and rows of shotguns, rifles, and ammunition lined the walls. In the end, they'd confiscated an arsenal of at least 150 weapons, 50,000 rounds of ammo, and stores of gunpowder from throughout the camp. Following the raid, authorities took a few of the God Squad men into custody for the possession of stolen arms. Some charges were even pressed against Bishop Doug himself. But within a month, the charges were dropped. It turned out the weapons had all been acquired legally. However, the fact that they were stockpiling weapons soon added them to the police commissioner's watch list, which made them subject to tighter surveillance. Following the raid, the God Squad wasn't deterred by the public's attention. Nor did the members mind the spotlight shown on them by the police. To the church, the raids were a form of worldly persecution, emblematic of its journey down the righteous path. The incident only reinforced what the founder had taught them. It appeared Bishop Doug got off scot-free. In 1987, when Bishop Doug was 66 years old, Full Gospel Mission was raided again. This time the cult was suspected of subversive conspiracy, a desire to overthrow the government, but there was an issue with the search warrant. The bureaucratic glitch gave the squad 48 hours to move their weapons. And once again, the police weren't able to find any crime with which to charge the group. But the incidents raised awareness among some members that things weren't quite right. One member even wrote a letter to the bishop expressing his fears that the founder was leading the group astray. In response, the man was publicly shunned, humiliated, and excommunicated. Bishop Doug even went so far as to excommunicate his entire family and claimed they were all headed straight to hell. Doug was adamant that his teachings were infallible, and he wasn't to be questioned or disagreed with. The founder would maintain this power until one June night in 1989, when 68-year-old Bishop Douglas Metcalf suddenly dropped dead. No prophecy predicted his time had come. There were no signs foretelling his demise. His heart simply gave out. In response, the members of Full Gospel Mission kept vigil over his body night and day. They waited three full days with bated breath for his resurrection. Some swore they saw him twitch. Others claimed a skeleton-like cloud portended his return from the afterworld. But in reality, his body stayed still and his spirit remained lost. 
The full gospel mission struggled with the loss of its founder, but the followers continued to live on the compound and practice their faith. Some believed Bishop Doug would return as Christ in the year 2000. But the God Squad wouldn't be around to witness Doug's resurgence. In 1996, at 39 years old, Rosina decided to tell her story. She confided in another female member that Bishop Doug had molested her from the time she was 13 years old. Rosina was surprised to learn that she wasn't the only one. A handful of girls began to share their stories and more came forward. They spoke of being called to Doug's room and the abuse they endured there. Bishop Doug effectively kept his trysts secret from his victim's parents and even his wife. He told the girls they would be kicked out if they breathed a word about their relationships with him. But Camp David was home. The young women couldn't fathom losing their families and thought they'd burn in hell if anyone knew. Furthermore, several of the victims had forgotten the details of their abuse until Rosina came forward. In her article, Why Adult Victims of Childhood Sexual Abuse Don't Disclose, psychotherapist Beverly Engel said, when a child is being sexually abused, in order to protect herself from the repeated invasion of her deepest inner self, she may turn off the connection between her mind and her body, creating the sensation of leaving one's body. This common defense helps the victim survive the assault. As more members learned of Bishop Doug's abuses and adultery, a mass exodus began. Sect members wondered how someone they devoted their whole lives to, someone they believed to be Christ himself, could be a predator and adulterer. Though Bishop Doug Metcalf promised his disciples the keys to the kingdom of heaven, his death left them wallowing in the wake of his faithless betrayal. He manipulated and brainwashed them. In the end, Doug lied to himself to feel clean from his sin, but in perpetuating his lie, his disciples were forced to live it too. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Bishop Douglas Metcalf, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Committed Concubine, a woman's account of her life within the confines of a religious cult by Napaki Rose, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Cults was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners. Remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. 
Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.